Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark chapter 14, verse 26 through 31. God's holy and inspired word, the gospel of Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So how do you feel when someone tells you that you cannot do it? They say, you're going to fail. No success for you. Well, it depends on what it is, but the taunt of failure can move us in a variety of ways. It first can depress and drive you to despair and give up. If an F is a far-gone conclusion, why even bother trying? Or the prediction of failure can ignite our resolve to prove the person wrong. The competition is on, you are on fire, and you're going to stick your success into that person's face. No one's going to tell you what you cannot do. Yet the forecast of failure might also push you to cheat. If you can't win by following the rules, then maybe go around them so you can get what you want. Either way, being told that you will fail is not easy, and we don't like it. And we generally judge the people who say such things as not very nice. It's rude and prejudicial. And yet, this is precisely what God tells us at Scripture at times, and it is what Jesus predicts for his disciples. They will fail him. Though instead of causing despair, Jesus uses their failure to highlight the triumph of grace for us. So dinner is over, the bread is all gone, and the vegetables are cold, and the Lord's Supper has been instituted. But the evening is far from over. If the disciples expected a good night's sleep, they were sorely mistaken, for now Jesus leads them out into the night. And yet before they exit that nicely furnished upper room, they sing a hymn. The choir of thirteen join their voices together unto the Lord. Now, sadly, though, Mark does not record their music. He doesn't cite a chapter or verse for us. Now, typically, due to the Passover context, it's assumed that the disciples here are singing one of the psalms that were called the Hallel Psalms, which refers to a group between Psalm 113 and Psalm 118. And according to Jewish tradition, these six psalms were sung during the Passover meal as part of the liturgy for that ritual meal. There is a problem with this, though, in that we're not sure if this tradition was in effect in Jesus' day. The tradition of singing Psalm 113 through 118 might come from a much later time. Thus, we have no solid evidence to confirm this practice in Jesus' day. 
On top of this, though, as we saw, this meal was eaten on the eve of Passover. This then leaves us even more in the dark on what hymn they sang. Nevertheless, Mark uses a very or a less common word for hymn singing here. As you can guess, there's a lot of words for singing in the Old Testament, but this one only appears three times in the Psalms. And it makes its first appearance in the famous Psalm 22, where the psalmist prays, Save me from the mouth of the lion, for in the midst of the congregation I will sing a hymn to you. Here, the suffering psalmist vows to sing a hymn to God after his agonizing tribulation. Next, this hymn singing makes another appearance in Psalm 71. And there, the enemies say against the psalmist, God has forsaken him, there is none to deliver him. But despite this hateful opposition, the psalmist vows to sing a hymn to God's glory. In both psalms, the torment and agony that the psalmist endures does not stop him from lifting up a hymn to God. And so also here, after predicting his soon death, Jesus sings a hymn. As the ultimate author of the psalms, Jesus sings the hymn that he first wrote. And this hymn singing hints that joy still lies in the future. Great sorrow and pain may be around the corner. Disaster and death are on the day's menu. But sadness will not get the last word. The mood here is somber and woeful. But on the night before he died, our Lord sang a hymn. He put his words to music. He serenaded the day of his sacrifice with the hope of a new and sweeter worship to come. Like the cup, Jesus will not sing again until he comes into his kingdom. But this final hymn ensures that a new and greater singing is yet to come. Yet with the warm singing now becoming silent, Jesus and his disciples are thrust out into the night. If it was not cloudy, the light of the full moon guided them once again back out to the Mount of Olives. Now, Mark does not record for us when Judas slipped away, so we're not sure if he's still with the apostolic gang. But Jesus has another thing to share with them. And if the mood isn't already kind of gloomy, this is an even bigger downer. For Jesus tells his brothers in the ministry, you will all fall away. No exceptions. Every last one of you will be tripped up. They will take offense at Jesus, and they will desert him. Our Lord sticks right under their noses the smelling salts of failure. You're going to fail. Jesus is not a flatterer. He doesn't offer a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. Rather, with bluntness, he registers their failure. The friends of Jesus will break the bond of friendship. And this falling away is pretty serious. First, this is what happened to the seed that fell among the rocks in the parable of the sower. That seed grew up, but when persecutions came, it fell away and died as it had no root. Next, our Lord said earlier that if your hand or eye causes you to stumble or fall away, then you should cut it off as it's better to enter life maimed 
than to be cast into Hades. Here Jesus linked falling away with being tossed into hell. It doesn't get any more serious than this, which litters us with questions. Does this mean the disciples fall away for good? Will this be their eternal condemnation? Do they end up in the same place as Judas? Is this a hopeless failure for them? Talk about troubling and making your pulse race. And to prove his point, Jesus quotes scripture. He cites Zechariah 13, verse 9, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, the Lord here refers to a prophecy that will soon be fulfilled, but this one verse actually taps into a proverbial truth of the Old Testament. Namely, this reflects the truth that God's people need leadership. The sheep depend on the shepherd. Examples of this abound. When Moses was had gone up on top of Sinai for 40 days, the people, without a leader, fell into worshiping the golden calf. The entire book of Judges drills down on this point. As the refrain is, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Under the wicked reign of King Ahab, the prophet said that he saw Israel scattered on the mountains like lost sheep. Ezekiel condemned the wicked shepherds who did nothing for the flock, leaving them scattered. In exile, God removed all leadership from his people, and they were scattered across the nations, lost in unknown places. Therefore, this truth first underlines the reality that as people, as sheep, we need leadership. Whatever we think of ourselves, no matter how self-reliant we are, we need a shepherd. This can also be seen in church history. A pastor or the elders fall into sin or die or taken out somehow, and the church folds. The church is not its leadership, it is the people. But without faithful leadership, the church gets scattered among the nations. Nevertheless, this general truth teaches or reaches its truest expression in Christ as the only good shepherd. He will be struck, which is no flesh wound or mishap, but a deadly mortal blow. He'll be taken out, assassinated, murdered. The enemies will bulldoze him into the borrowed ditch and leave him to rot. And with Jesus violently removed, the sheep will scatter. In fear and in sin, in cowardice and selfishness, they will disperse like mice in every direction. For the disciples are dependent upon Jesus. They need him. He's their rock and stability. But without him, out of the picture, they will be untethered like a loose kite in the wind. Furthermore, though, this since this fulfills scripture, <laughs> excuse me, it makes both the striking and the scattering part of God's ordained will. For the Old Testament scriptures lay out what, what is the divine necessity for Jesus that he had to endure, that he had to submit to and obey. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus must give himself up to be struck down. But this also means that the fate of the disciples running off 
is also God's will. It's a necessity that cannot be altered or changed. Indeed, why was it necessary for the disciples to fling themselves away from our Lord? Well, it is because Jesus must die alone. A chief agony of of his sufferings is loneliness. To be abandoned and deserted by all who loved him, all who claimed him as Lord and friend. The Heavenly Father forsook him on on the cross, and so also all his earthly loved ones disowned Jesus. For the way of the cross has many gruesome splinters to tear at Jesus, but one of the bitter stabs to his soul was to be all alone. All love and friendship dumped Jesus. And so the disciples ditch our Lord and fall away to leave him isolated and friendless. The disciples' rejection of our Savior is another one of those blows that struck the shepherd. Though, as is fairly obvious, being told that you will fail doesn't feel good. And Peter, especially, doesn't like the taste of failure. He isn't isn't pushed towards to despair or to cheat, but he does double down to prove Jesus wrong. No way, my Lord. With all due respect, I will disrespect you. You are wrong. Now, this might be true of others, he says. These other flakes might fall, but not I. Peter puts his foot down and calls Jesus a liar. It will never happen, he insists. Peter will never stumble. He will not take offense. He will not fall away, and he's not going to scatter. Mary's little lamb has nothing on Peter, for he will follow and cling to Jesus by superglue. And for most of us, we sympathize with Peter. We hate it when people tell us what we cannot do, and we love to prove people wrong by achieving success beyond all expectations. Besides, it is only fitting to vow allegiance. Love shouldn't give up easily. Even if failure looks likely, love has to promise the best it can. You can't tell your spouse, love is hard, so I'm not going to even try. Therefore, rightly, Peter promises loyalty and devotion to Jesus. He vows to never leave him or forsake him. Peter's zeal correctly burned for our Lord. And yet, nothing is more fading than a thoughtless or inconsiderate zeal. A foolish zeal boasts of abilities that it does not possess. Peter's zeal flatters himself without a sober grasp on reality. Thus, he makes several proud missteps. One, he negates the necessity of Scripture. He pleads that he can be the one good exception to Scripture's Sad prophecy. Two, he doesn't take serious the the truth that the sheep are dependent upon the shepherd. Peter can survive without the shepherd. He's the one sheep who can herd himself. Three, Peter negates the word of Jesus. Sorry, Jesus, you're just wrong. But this itself is deeply disrespectful and a lack of faith. Finally, Peter has a bloated view of his own strength and devotion. He has more confidence 
than is either smart or realistic. The biggest crisis of faith is staring Peter in the face, and all he can say is, yeah, I got this. Jesus told Peter, you're jumping out of a plane without a parachute. And Peter responds, yeah, but my arms can fly. And so Jesus must bring Peter down a bit. He says, truly, Peter, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter's stumbling is not far off. It will happen before the sad sun rises on this coming day of the cross. Moreover, this fast-approaching stumbling is a threefold denial. Not once, not twice, but a superlative three denials Peter will commit. And again, such denials scare us with horrific tones of finality. As Jesus said earlier in his ministry, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. How is this not worthy of ultimate and eternal wrath? Indeed, Jesus said to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves and follow him. So to deny Jesus is the opposite. It's the anti-disciple. We shudder at the betrayal of Judas, but now we cannot see how Peter is not in the same boat. Betrayal, threefold denial, these are distinct sins, but are they really that different? The uncomfortable conclusion sits heavy on us. Does this mean all the apostles are lost to hell, with Peter leading the way? Sure seems this. Of course, Peter is not having it. um, There's no way he will fail. Even if he has to die with Jesus, he will never, no, never deny him. Peter's zeal is so emphatic here, his words nearly jump off the page. In no uncertain terms, he promises and swears to die with our Lord. He boasts like one who is putting on his armor and not like one who's taking his armor off. And all the other disciples echo Peter and try to outdo him with passionate vows of loyalty. The pride and love of the disciples will prove Jesus wrong. They will negate the words of scripture and they will be strong when no one else is. When the shepherd is struck, they think that they will be the mighty heroes of the faith. Of course, though, we know the rest of the story. Listening to the boast of the apostles here is like watching a video of a young man who says he will live forever and hearing this at his funeral. For all the proper desires to be loyal, despite their zeal and confidence, all the apostles fall away. They stumble into sin, they deny our Lord, and they scatter out of fear to protect themselves. Scripture will be proven true about all the disciples. And knowing this ending leaves us with a lump in our throat that we cannot swallow. Since the disciples denied Jesus, does this mean their ultimate judgment? If denial can be distinguished from betrayal, do they reap the same condemnation as Judas? In terms of sin, it sure seems like it. Nevertheless, Jesus added one more prediction here besides the sheep being scattered. Verse 28. He says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Jesus clearly states his resurrection. He will be struck fatally and horrendously, but he will not stay dead. Up from the grave he will burst, he will die, but he will become alive forevermore. Then in his newly resurrected body, he will go before the disciples to Galilee. He will regather them and meet them up north. The scattered sheep Jesus will gather to himself. And to rejoin those who denied you is to make reconciliation. To go back to those who broke friendship is to remake the friendship. Thus, Jesus promises a resurrection reconciliation with his weak and sinful disciples who denied him. And to reconcile with these deniers is to offer forgiveness. It's to heal what was broken. It's to wash away all their unfaithfulness and bring them back to the very side of Jesus. In the face of the disciples' ugly sin, their offensive falling away, their foolish zeal, and their broken promises, this is Jesus declaring the triumph of his grace. Sure, the disciples' sin deserved the same fate as Judas. But for them, Jesus' grace won a better destiny and redemption. Being struck as the shepherd, Christ's grace did for the disciples what they could not do for themselves. And what grace did for the disciples, so it does for you. In his resurrection, power, and love, Jesus' grace triumphs for you and in you. His grace succeeds to the uttermost, where we fail. For grace teaches us first what Peter struggled to understand, namely that we are desperately weak and fragile. Like sheep, we need a shepherd. And with Christ as our shepherd, we would all fall away. Then, with a sober view of our sin and frailty, grace makes us look outside of ourselves to Christ's power, And his faithfulness to us. If left in our sin, we would despair. But grace unites us to Christ and all his benefits and his undying love. In this way, our trust and courage come not from us, our own strength, but it comes from Christ's sustaining mercy and grace. We promise faithful love to Jesus based on his grace working in us by the Spirit. Likewise, Christ's grace comforts us by assuring us that it is always present to pick us back up. Stumbling, trip-ups, we all suffer from. But for the grace of God, there we go as well. So also Christ's grace gives you the assurance of his forgiveness and reconciliation when we stumble. That if we wander, he's always the loving father to receive us back from our time of being a prodigal. Therefore, let us rest in Christ alone and not in our strength. Let Let us praise him for his resurrection, reconciliation, and the triumph of grace for sinners like us. And then let us join in that hymn with our Lord. 
He sang a hymn here in hope of singing again with the congregation. And so as we are the congregation of the Lord, may we ever raise hymns and psalms to the glory of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. For Christ is our strength, Christ is our song, so that we can be ever faithful to him as he is ever faithful to us. Amen. Let us pray.